In 2015, Ann Romney told the Today Show's Hoda and Kathy Lee that the hardest part of writing her memoir, In This Together, which focuses primarily on her battle with multiple sclerosis, was going back into the dark, scary place that I was. The depression and the overwhelming fatigue and the hopelessness and the feeling that life was over and there was nothing worth living for anymore. Today, over 20 years after her diagnosis, Anne explains why she is grateful for MS and for the faith that carried her through it. Anne Romney is the two-time best-selling author of The Romney Family Table and In This Together and global ambassador for the Anne Romney Center for Neurologic Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Mrs. Romney also sits on the board of directors of Charity Vision, which focuses on empowering local physicians in the developing world to bring sight to those most in need. In 1998, Mrs. Romney was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. She has volunteered much of her time to raise awareness of the disease. By raising the profile of MS as well as raising funds for advocacy and research, she is determined to make a difference in the lives of people who suffer from the disease. The Romneys celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary this year. They have five sons, five daughters-in-law, and 24 grandchildren. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so honored to be here with Ann Romney today. Ann, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a few weeks now, and I've been reading your book, which I absolutely love in this together. Mm -hmm. And I have found myself thinking a lot about the unexpected. I've talked to several friends. You you suffer from multiple sclerosis, and that is something that several of my friends also battle on a daily basis. And I've talked with them about it in preparation for this and just said, you know, what what would you like to ask Anne? And I think regardless of what it is people are going through, this conversation will be applicable. But one of the things that they pointed out is that with multiple sclerosis, it's dealing with the unexpected and also dealing with uncertainty. I think that is, with my first diagnosis, that was clearly how I felt. Now I've gotten to a place where I just live and I don't think about it anymore. But that was really, really troubling for me for a long time, for many years, not knowing when the next shoe was going to drop, how bad was it going to be. And I've gotten into a rhythm of life now where I know kind of where I have to be careful and what I have to do to take care of myself. And I have to be vigilant, but I'm also pretty comfortable with feeling assured that I'm going to be okay no matter what. Well, that's one thing I want to kind of discuss today, if that's okay with you, is kind of how do you get to that point? But before we get there, I want to kind of start with what was your life like leading up to your diagnosis? So I was a mother of five very active boys. And to keep my sanity, I I love sports, and I was a very active tennis player. And I probably played five days a week. And that was my out. I would get out of the house, have my time, me time, physical, energetic. 
I also was in aerobic classes. I was super fit, really energetic. I was running the show. Mitt was very busy in the church. He always had, he's been a bishop, he's been a stake president. And our whole married life, he had a sort of a big church calling. And so Sundays I was, you know, did everything, take, you know, get everything planned. And then also even running the house, like he didn't do any of the bills or anything. I ran everything, which is the way it just worked out. It was great. He was absolutely 100% committed to the family and to the boys, but he also knew that I was really running the ship and at home. (laughs) Yeah. And that's where I was. I was just very active. And I had a friend that did have multiple sclerosis and I was 49 years old. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm becoming of the age where I'm never going to have to worry about being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Because for me, that would be the worst thing imaginable because I love anything physical. Mm -hmm. I love sports. I love moving. I love being active. And wouldn't you know it, I mean, I got hit at 49 just prior to my 50th birthday with multiple sclerosis. And I, it took me probably four months to know what it was. I really didn't have a clue. Like, I don't think anyone that is first diagnosed knows really what the symptoms are. And they're unique, obviously, to, to everybody. But for me, it was enormous weakness, fatigue. And then I started having my my right leg was numb. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But I had a lot of back issues. I thought, well, it's just a pinched nerve. Didn't think much of it. This went on for several months. And then, then I called my brother, who's a doctor. I said, something's wrong, but I don't know like what doctor I go to. Like, I don't yeah. even know where who to do start. You even, who do well, you and even I think go that's to? a big question always for anyone that gets, they, where they know something's off. What do I do? Who do I go to? I don't even know where to start. And my brother listened and he told me I had to go see a neurologist. And I'm like, why would I do that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's probably my back. Why would I see a neurologist? Anyway, that was the beginning of my self-discovery of dealing with multiple sclerosis. Well, I've loved reading in the book kind of as you went through that process of finding out what it was and immediately dealing with the the many questions that face someone who goes through that. And I think the biggest issue was uh, an identity issue is who am I? What worth am I to anybody at this point? Because I was such, I was so active and I was doing so many things and you define yourself and who you are by what you're doing. And then I thought, I can't be doing anything anymore. I'm worthless. I'm worth nothing to anybody. I can hardly take care of myself. Well, I couldn't hardly take care of myself. And that you go through, that was my refiner's fire, is going through that where the rug is completely pulled out from underneath you. And you go from being a giver, complete giver, Mm -hmm. to someone that maybe can only take. And that is a huge shift. And so that was tough. And then you have to say, what is my worth? What is my value? And that goes again to your essence of your faith and what's the purpose of life and where am I in this life? And my the rest of my life, I figured was going to be just awful. Mm-hmm. I never figured I'd have another good day. And 
I and I thought I'm going to be a burden and you know this is this was it that was a really really tough thing to go through and I can imagine that anyone that goes through any kind of a crisis you know even if it's not a health crisis you go through those soul searching moments where you have to like make the playing field all over again to fit where you are mhm and you know it comes again it comes down to faith and it comes down to an eternal perspective and and even then i resign myself to the fact well nothing ever good is going to come in my life again and i'm never going to feel good again i'm never going to be happy again i'm never going <laughs> to have another good day but i'm going to have to now live with this and i i so look forward again to like eternal life. And I'm like, well, I know eventually there will be relief, but not in this life for me. And that was basically where I was for a long time. Mm -hmm. And multiple sclerosis, I didn't know this until reading your book, but it is very unique in the sense that one, and you touched on this, it affects people differently. Can you kind of tell listeners how it immediately or initially affected you? I think this is the universal piece of how it affected me is pretty true for almost everyone is this enormous fatigue. And it's not a fatigue that you're used to with even like after a long day, (laughs) you know, you're really beat. It's very different. It's to the bone fatigue. It's I try to explain it to people where it was an effort for me to open a piece of mail. It was, that took, because I knew then if I opened that piece of mail, I had to deal with something. I didn't have the energy to deal with anything. And so it's, and then you think, well, tomorrow I'll get a good night's sleep and I'll feel okay in the morning. And then you wake up in the morning, you feel the same way. It's, it was awful and I have to say, I still deal with that fatigue, but not to the extent that it was. And I had to learn how to break through that and push myself through that fatigue. And, you know, I did, honestly, I did that with horses. I did that with getting on a back of a horse and riding. And, you know, when, when the horse doesn't know, <laughs> it's like, and the horse keeps moving. And it's like, you got to keep moving with it. And so it kind of chipped the ice that was locking my body a little bit and forced me. It would like force me through a lot of things and force me through that initial sort of fog of fatigue. But that's pretty universal. And that's what we all have to watch out for. So I had that. I had the numbness, the weakness. Frankly, Losing my right leg didn't bother me as much as the fatigue it, mm. because the fatigue affected everything right. all day long. And the right leg I could drag. <laughs> yeah. You know, I could, I could go wherever I wanted to go and drag my leg along. But it, it was that fatigue which didn't allow you really to have anything right. that you could do as a, as a normal life. Right. There are several follow-up questions that I want to ask based on that. First, one thing that that I found interesting is that there's also no, well, they told you initially that there was no treatment for multiple sclerosis. Right. You found some different things and you mentioned riding horses, but you found different things that have helped you. And in particular, I'd love if you could tell listeners a little bit about the man that you found that helped you here in Utah. Oh, yeah. That was a very non-traditional thing. So (laughs) coming from Boston, so Mitt and I were here 
We'd had, you know, raised our boys in Boston, but then Mitt came to run the Salt Lake Olympic Games in at the same time I was being diagnosed. And so I came with Mitt as of knowing nobody, feeling awful. And I left my basically East Coast, very medical-oriented, you know, my way of thinking and structure. And and fortunately, I did find a doctor who maybe we'll talk about later, Dr. Howard Weiner, yeah. who we now run the center with, this research center. But he did get me on medication that did stop the progress of my MS. But I also remember it, it literally was great. I mean, I, I did IV steroids. But I, I remember calling him afterwards, and it was around Christmas time. And I'd been on the steroids, I think at that point, maybe two months. And I said, you know what? The progress is of the, you know, the numbness and the weak, you know, the, the leg weakness has stopped growing, but I still am so tired. I mean, what can I do? And he he's honestly at that point, there wasn't a big answer for that. They have medication now where I've never had to use it. So I've figured out my own path. Mm-hmm. But it was sort of shocking to me that's like, wait a minute, are you kidding me? I'm going to have to feel like this the rest of my life. And so at that point, I I realized it was more up to me to figure out how I was going to live my, the rest of my life, that Western medicine had helped me as much as it was going to help me. And so I had somebody call me after I was newly diagnosed, and she said some very interesting things to me and that were totally foreign. I didn't, and I wrote it down. So I took notes and she said, be open to alternative therapies, be open to cranial sacral, to reflexology, to acupuncture, all these different things can help you with your energy. And, and so then I remembered that and I looked back at my notes and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then, you know, I somehow got led to Fritz, Fritz Bleichau, who is this like 78 year old German member of the church. And, you know, I, I just trusted him. He was a reflexologist and he knew when he first treated me what I had, I didn't even tell him. He could tell. And I'm like, I was mystified by it. So I went in a whole nother self-discovery of alternative medicine and how our whole, we have to treat our whole body. (laughs) And what he did through reflexology basically was three years, three times a week, two hour sessions. And very painful because the points he would press were very, very inflamed and very painful. But I got, I would feel better afterwards for a few hours. And it was shock, it was shocking to me. It was like I could physically feel better and feel energy. And, and so it went on and it, the time grew longer and longer where I felt better. Now, I was doing that at the same time I was riding horses. And so for me, it was like I was doing the Western medicine, I was doing the Eastern medicine, and I was doing the therapeutic riding. So it was a combination of all those things that kind of got me out of my funk. Yeah. I love that because I think so many times we kind of have an idea of what's going to help us get better, whether it's Eastern or Western medicine. But I think that God has given us so many different tools to help us. Even the food that we eat can can help us in being well and being whole. I loved in the book where you talk about this experience with Fritz and how he even trained 
your son right. on how to to help you when he wasn't available. Right. Yeah, he did. He taught Josh, my son Josh, and Josh was very he he took to it very quickly and he literally had a feel for it. And you know, I if I went away for 2 weeks and didn't see Fritz, I knew you know, he was my spark plug. I mean, I needed that. And and so Josh would, you know, help me. Um, during those times when I I couldn't be around Fritz, and it was it was kind of amazing. I mean, to sort of everyone in my family, being from Boston and being so Western medicine oriented, that mom is really crazy. But <laughs> but this seems to really help her. Might not help me. That was the other big jump people had to take. Is that oh, it's just helping you, right? It won't help anybody else. But indeed, you know, there's so many other modalities that can help us be healthy. And food is another big one. I mean, really, you know, we'll, maybe we'll get back to my research center. But now it's what we're finding is the gut is huge in dictating disease. Hmm. And the microbiome that we have in our, in our gut is very, very important. And food is a big piece of feeding the healthy bacteria and trying to starve the, the bad bacteria in yeah. our gut. So interesting. Another thing that came to my mind, and this is a little bit more, I guess, it's a little bit deeper than what's on the surface, but I think that we we talk about with you, you went through this fatigue. And I think so many people, whether they're dealing with a an illness or a disease that's causing them to feel tired, or whether it's just life, and trials and things, but I feel like so many people today are tired. And so, Anne, for you, how did you face that fatigue? How did you push through it? You were doing incredible things at that time. You and Mitt had moved here to save the Olympics in Utah. How did you face that feeling of exhaustion? Well, it, it was the hardest part of the disease for me. So I, again, I just had to figure it out. I knew it was up to me and I had to figure it out. And that's when, you know, I found Fritz and I was doing that and I was riding horses and that kept me going. However, I still had to be very cautious. And this girl that called me that very initially, she gave me all these guideposts that I literally still remember her voice and do some of those things is that you've moved into a new body now. You can't do the things you used to do. You have to be home in bed. You can't stay out late. You have to be in a routine. You have to sleep. You have to take like a rest at three in the afternoon. Whatever it is that you've got to get through with this. And I have to tell you, going on a presidential campaign <laughs> was an entirely different I'm sure. bag of... It, it, was, it was very difficult. But again, at that point, I was much healthier. I'd gotten the disease under control. I'd literally tamed the disease. And I not I know that not everybody does. I feel very fortunate that I was able to tame this disease and I have it under control and I'm in remission. Not everybody can say that, but because of that, because of my now health, I, I really feel like I'm in permanent remission now. That it is my turn to have the understanding heart. And the desire to give everyone else hope that they can get better too. And that led to my developing this research center. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your research center. You are doing incredible work. I just saw on Instagram, you received an award. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Well, I, I do get awards and I don't feel like I deserve any of them because the people that are doing the, I'm not doing the research, but what I think what is unique about how I'm being recognized right now is the fact that we're not just studying multiple sclerosis. And this research is center is a concept which studies all neurologic disease. So we study multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's, uh, glioblastoma tumors, which are a little bit more unique. They're the deadly one. And we have over 300 researchers under one roof in Boston at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. It's led by Dr. Howard Weiner and Dr. Dennis Selko. They're both leading experts, one in multiple sclerosis, one in Alzheimer's. And we are collaborating. That's the other important thing that we're doing with research centers across the world, not just the United States. We're in Sweden and Russia and Great Britain. And we really are at the cutting edge of finding not just treatment, but a cure for these devastating neurologic diseases. And it is my absolute belief that we will find a cure for these diseases. And right now, Alzheimer's is sort of foremost in in the center where people are getting a lot more attention to it right now because it is so devastating. But we are doing some incredible things and we're working on a uh, nasal vaccine where it literally will people will be able to take this nasal vaccine and have a vaccination against Alzheimer's. So that's one thing that we're working on right now. We're starting human trials this year. It's taken five years to get all the approvals and to get the drug manufactured and to get the right dosage. And then for us to get this, the study set up and then to get the funding. And it's, it's been a very long slog, but we're, you know, we're hopeful. Each little step, each little piece of progress brings us one step closer. And all these diseases, you know, we'll find a treatment, we'll find a drug, for instance, for Parkinson's, and then we somehow find it might apply to multiple sclerosis. So there's a lot of interdisciplinary work that's being done in the labs where, you know, we're really finding some of the drugs that we're testing are working in other diseases. Yeah. And do you think that you, and I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm curious about your thoughts. I don't feel like you would have ever done these incredible things that you're doing if you hadn't been through it. And I think that that's something that's been on my mind a lot lately is that we go through difficult things, like you said, because then we have an understanding heart and we want to help others who are going through those same things. Why has that meant so much to you? You know, I, I, I am so grateful this is hard for me to even believe I would ever say this. I am so grateful for multiple sclerosis and what it's done in my life. It took me to my knees. It completely ground me to dust. And then I had to remake myself from a core and a solid belief in our eternal connectiveness and in our eternal brotherhood and sisterhood, in our the eternal goodness of our Father in heaven, and in an obligation that we all have to sustain each other and to help each other 
And it did give me a broken heart and a love for other people that are suffering and an understanding for what that means and how hard it is because I've been there. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm really, really grateful. I, I say multiple sclerosis was my best teacher. It was an unwelcome teacher. But as I look back in my life now, I would never have believed I would have done what I've done or been where I've been and and been the sympathetic voice that I have been and have been the hope for so many now, especially not even with multiple sclerosis sufferers, but for anyone that is suffering from some of these terrible neurologic diseases, is that I have been able to have the power and influence to draw together a huge group of researchers, a huge group of donors, and that sort of I've paved the way for them to follow and find a way to make a difference. Yeah. Well, first, thank you for all that you're doing. I would like to know, you've touched on this a little bit, but this idea of identity and how you were in a place where it felt like you had been stripped of your identity. Everything that you had been was no longer. And how did you kind of rediscover your identity? And how do you feel that your faith helped you or aided you in doing that? Yeah, I think, again, we define ourselves on this earth by what we do, <laughs> not by who we are. And what I what I did was taken away from me. And so all I was left with was who who am I? And it was a huge support to have my husband with me at that point, where he said, I don't care if you're in a wheelchair. As long as we're in this together, and that's how the name of the title of the book came from, was when he said that, we're in this together. And I don't care how sick you get. You know, I'll be here with you. I still love you just as much. And that was a real sort of a time to just take a deep breath and relax because it was like, okay, I now have to just resign myself to this. I have to just give it up. And then at that point, it was like, all right, what do I have left? I have, what do I have left? I have left is hope. (laughs) I have left is trust and faith in eternal life and in resurrection. I'm going to tell you how much more the resurrection (laughs) meant to me at that point. And, And it's like, okay, I'm okay. And it was knowing that I was okay. Having that faith of knowing that this is just what happens in life. And, you know, this is the deck of cards I got to deal with. Okay, now this is what I have to deal with. And just accepting it. And once you accept it, it was like, now I have to figure out how to make the best of it. And it was it was great to have my family. My sons were amazing. My husband was amazing. But my faith is really what got me through it, is the understanding, the eternal perspective. Yeah. Thank you. I think that there are likely people listening to this episode who have loved ones who are dealing with something very hard, whether it be multiple sclerosis or another disease or really any trial. And 
I wonder for you, what would be your advice for families? You mentioned that your your sons and Mitt were a huge support, but what would be your advice to families who want to support, want to be there, and maybe they're watching their loved one in that early stage where it feels like this is it? Well, you know, I think early on too, you don't, I didn't want to share. Like I didn't want to say how desperate I felt or how sick I felt like every day. (laughs) You know, you don't want to, again, you don't want to be a burden. And so I think for family members to really just listen and sit and quietly uh, try to understand where they're coming from, but to also try to understand that life has to shift a little bit, that expectations for whatever that person was doing, maybe they can't do anymore, or to understand that they still can't perform. Or I I had a hard time because I was on so many boards in Boston and I looked the same and I could put on lipstick and, you know, mascara and go out and look the same. And I could put a smile on my face, but nobody knew like how it was like such an effort for me even to just get dressed. And, and so I think people still expected me to just still be on their boards and still be coming to meetings and doing all these things. And in a way, when Mitt left to go to the Olympics, it was the greatest relief for me to just pull the plug on everything. I just left. Like, you can't call me because I'm not there. Mm-hmm. And that was huge. It was really big that I could come, get away, and just heal. And so I think, you know, for for people that are early diagnosed or doing or suffering, it's really, really hard to unplug from the rest of what you're doing with life. And some can't. I mean, they have small children and different things. It's like impossible. But for the most part, you need to unplug. And I think family members need to understand that. Yeah. I I think that it is so interesting to think about this this struggle of, and I think that this is true of many forms of depression and anxiety where it's unseen. Like you said, you look the same yeah. and you can you can get ready and get dressed and everybody thinks that everything's fine, but that there's often burdens that people are carrying underneath the surface. And that's why it's so important for us to be kind and to be patient and to try to understand that sometimes it's like Jane Clayson Johnson says, you know, you wouldn't wear a cast on your head, but you'd wear a cast if your arm was broken. And I think that that, that's so true of so many things. And I think so many of us need, I think the pressures of life are so great, but so many of us need to just take a very, very deep breath and feel and be quiet and find a really quiet place where you can listen. And when you do, you really can feel the love of our Heavenly Father. You can really feel the blessings of atonement. And I know one of the blessings I was given was that I would have a deeper understanding of the atonement. And I certainly did. But I had to take time to be really quiet and to be really still. And in a way, the disease forced me to be there. And so, you know, we we do need to know that there, no matter how hard it is, we can find stillness and peace with the gospel. And it is hard because the world is so noisy. 
And what has the atonement come to mean to you? Well, again, if you're broken in so many pieces, like I felt I was, there is a physical piece of it, of feeling like there's the resurrection piece of it. But it's also the other piece of it, which is the Savior will fill in all the holes and all the gaps and all of the weaknesses, which become accentuated when you're sick. And it's a reminder that we cannot do this. Never, not one of us can get there without the Savior. And it's a very sort of (laughs) abrupt and sudden reminder that that's very true. We need His love, we need His forgiveness, and we need His mercy. And that's the only way we're going to be whole is through the atonement. I was just watching something the other day where someone was saying that you we we hear the phrase like God will never give us anything that we can't handle. And they talked about how that's true, but that often we forget the the second part of that which is God will never give us anything that we can't handle without the help of the atonement of Jesus Christ. God will absolutely give us things that we can't handle on our own, but He won't give us things that we can't handle without that enabling power of the atonement. And I thought that that was so good because I think that's the piece that so often gets lost. Right. I, yeah, I totally. I mean, that's that's where I was. You know, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> I got this? <laughs> this thing that I really didn't want to get? I got this? Well, it's interesting that you said you had a friend that had it, and so you had watched it. I think so often, my mom and I just had a conversation about this the other day, about how she heard Rex Lee's wife speak once, and his wife said that she and her sister had had a conversation. And in the conversation, she said, you know, what would be the hardest thing for you to go through? And her sister had said what it would be for her. And then she said the hardest thing would be to lose Rex, her husband. And then that's what happened to her. And her sister, whatever she said was the hardest thing, that's what happened to her. And so you don't want to say it. <laughs> exactly. And my mom was saying, you know, that's that's the interesting thing about life is that so often the thing that scares us the most or the thing that we think there's no way I would be able to make it through that, that's often the thing that we go through, but then we make it through it. Yeah. Remarkably. I, I mean, that honestly is my next fear too, is I don't want to be separated from it. And Ann Madsen is a dear friend. And, you know, she lost Truman, I think five more, maybe seven. I don't know how many years ago Truman died. And, and you know, I talked to Ann and I always ask her, I'm like, how are you doing? And, and I'm like, how lonely are you? I want to ask her, like, literally, how lonely are you? Because she'll be saying she'll be, she's fine, which she is, but she's lonely. You know, it's hard to lose a spouse. And I think for now, the next phase of my life, you know, I look around and I'm 70 years old now, and I'm like, oh, shoot, I know what's coming next. <laughs> you know, it's illness, death, all these things that are going to be happening to my friends and the people I love. And and that's your next big hurdle is like the loneliness and the fear of losing a spouse or, you know, and I think I think for all of us, the hardest thing is death and 
losing a loved one, especially if you're a parent, losing a child, it's out of order. And that heartache is like just what you carry the rest of your life. It's not like you get over it. You get through it, but you don't ever get over it. You touch on an interesting point. And first of all, if I look like you look at 70, I will be thrilled. (laughs) But I think this idea of aging and facing, again, it's that idea of uncertainty and what's coming in the future. But you've touched on that idea of eternal perspective and of the importance of having an eternal perspective. For you in this phase of life, how important is that? Well, you know, it's... It's getting to the point where you do start thinking about what's next. Um, And you do want to make the next years where you're still really vital and feel good and are still healthy. You, you want to like, I want to, I want to move faster. I'm like, I'm in a race now. I've got, I got, I can see the finish line. Uh Oh, (laughs) I know what's coming. And so I'm in this huge rush. And, you know, when I, when I, get frustrated with things like at our research center. I'm like, move it, just move it faster. Come on. I call them. I'm like, they're like, oh, it's coming in. It's coming. (laughs) And and I just feel this impatience with, I know what I still want to accomplish. And I just, you know, I just, I I find myself really like just moving faster. A sense of urgency. Very much so. And and yet at the same time, I know what I'm supposed to be doing is slowing down and listening. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's an interesting phase of life where you you know, I mean, clearly when you're in your 70s, you know it's not it's not gonna go on forever. And when you're younger, you don't ever think about it. You never think about it. And now as as we age, we're like, oh, how much more time do I have left? How many more good years do I have left? And well, of course, we can look at the prophet and go a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if we could all keep up with his him. His 95th birthday, and look what he's doing. I mean, yeah. it's remarkable. Well, that's very, very rare. He's he's one in a million. Absolutely, we're so grateful for him. Definitely, very, very fortunate to be alive at this time and to have that example of living life to its fullest. I think that. It's interesting and to hear that perspective. And I as I have been preparing for this interview, one thing that that kept coming to my mind is here is someone who you were side by side with Mitt through two presidential campaigns. And you it looked like at some points you were gonna be the first lady. And instead, your life has taken this kind of different turn, and you have this Center for Neurological Disease, which is doing remarkable work. And I think it's such a good example of living and then taking the adjustments or course corrections as they come, and then embracing whatever opportunity is next. And so for you, as you've had to kind of make these adjustments, what have you learned about embracing the plan that God has for us? Well, you never know what the plan is because you can sure take U-turns really fast. So you can't ever count. You think, oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This And no, that doesn't happen. Yeah. And so for me, it was an enormous desire. 
even after mit loss, to still feel a way to serve and to still be a light. And, you know, this opportunity presented itself. And I, in talking with the doctors, when we were doing the concept of this whole research center, I said, well, I won't have as big of an impact now that I'm not first lady, but I will still have an impact if we do, if we do this research. And do this collaboration with all these different diseases. And so for me, it was like, I wanted to still just keep going forward. I just wanted to still keep pushing. Yeah, I didn't want to quit. And so I still had this enormous desire to serve and to be a light and to f- give hope because, you know, you do feel as though I, I did. I felt like my life had been touched by God's hand and I needed I, I just needed to give back. I think that's so inspiring because as a first lady, you would have a platform and something that you devote all of that time toward, but you don't have to be the first lady. Anyone listening, you can have a passion and something that drives you and makes you, gives you purpose and fulfills a life's mission. That's something that I really believe in is that God has a mission for all of us to fulfill. And that, yes, there may be moments where we're having to kind of figure out, okay, what does this mission look like now? But it's still ours to fulfill. Yeah, no, I really felt compelled to do this and really joyful about the whole thing. And you you really do get sucked into the enthusiasm of the research and getting down to the bare knuckles and looking at the four different brain, brain cell types and what they're doing and what they're discovering and, you know, the, the work that they're doing. And I, I do, again, I want to give people hope. It's like those of us that are suffering right now, maybe not, you know what I mean? But I met the most interesting person on my book tour. It was on the In This In This Together book tour that I did. And I was in La Jolla, California, and I was at a bookstore, and people were coming through, and I was doing a book signing. And this one gentleman came in, and he had ALS, which is one of the diseases we study, which is Lou Gehrig's, which is one of the most horribly horrible diseases because literally there is no treatment for it. However, at our research center, we're, we're finding a drug that we think might really help it. It works in, in the laboratory, and we're hoping it will translate. Anyway, he knew all about this, and he came. And you could see, I mean, you could see the disease was really devastating and ravaging his body. He physically got there, but it was very difficult for him, and he had a lot of friends helping him in. And he came to me, and oh my gosh, you know, again, you see physically, this is who I'm going to be helping And he knew, he said, I am so grateful for what you are doing. He goes, I know it's not going to help me because they have a death sentence really with just such a short amount of time. And he said, but I am just so grateful and I had to come and thank you. And I thought, wow, that summarized it all. There are all those people out there that are suffering that know this research that we're doing is not going to really help them, but it will help those in the next generation of disease that is come that is coming along. And I just keep hoping that that day is closer and closer. And I do believe it's getting there. We are going to be we are going to be making breakthroughs. 
as you were sharing that story, I couldn't help but think of all the different people as we've been reading the New Testament this year, all the different people that came to Christ longing to be healed and how Christ was able to heal them. And that by trying to do this research in a way, you are following the example of Jesus Christ. And I just, I think that's so beautiful. Mm. Oh, that's touching. I had never thought of it that way. That makes me touched. Yes, thank you. And as we wrap up, I have two last questions for mm-hmm. you. One, you are a convert right. to, the, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What has your faith and your belief in the gospel meant to you in your life? Well, it completely, my conversion completely changed the course of my life. It opened windows and light and goodness and everything that I, my soul and spirit wanted to gravitate towards. And so it has been a pattern of living and a guideline for my entire life. Um, because I joined when I was about 17, 18 years old. And um, I was a mother to five boys who all went on missions, who all got married in the temple. I have 24 grandchildren who are all active. I have one return missionary granddaughter that's married. I have one grandson that just went to the Rome-Italy mission. I have another granddaughter that's just been called to Chile. And I, I keep thinking, this is, I, I want them, I want them to stay close to the gospel, stay close to the gospel principles, because I know it, again, will be a guidepost for them in their life. And it's the one way to find happiness, and it's the one way to find purpose. And it's, it's the one way, it's the one and really only way to really know what we're to do in life and how we can be safe in, in a safe haven, because I think the world in the next generation and the next several generations is going to be more and more and more difficult. And I think if you don't have the ability to hold on to that rod, I think life is going to be especially difficult for people. Yeah. In conclusion, and what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I feel like for, for my husband and myself, we were all in, and I think people saw that when when they saw the presidential campaigns unfold and how we stayed true to the faith, true to our principles. And I mean, I'm true blue through and through, and never an excuse, never equivocation of any kind. And, you know, it is it is the core of our life. It is the core foundation that's guided our lives. And, you know, we just will never abandon it. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you. And I appreciate so much all that you're doing and for sharing your testimony with us. So thank you. Thank you. 
We are so appreciative to Ann Romney for joining us on this week's episode. You can find Ann's book, In This Together, as well as her cookbook, The Romney Family Table at Deseret Book. If you haven't already, please do us a huge favor and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcast. I promise everyone counts. Thank you to Derek Campbell from Mix at Six Studios for making these episodes sound so clear and so beautiful. And thank you for listening. We'll have another great episode for you next week, so stay tuned.